we need to get out of the some of the weeds and the technicalities and start leaning into the business side of the company and aligning security to it. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's episode, I welcome back two previous guests, Brian Hoagley, co-founder of Side Channel Security and former CISO at the Hanover Insurance Group, and Scott Morris, CISO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York, to talk about security trends we see going into 2020, specifically changes to the role of the CISO. As the role of the CISO continues to mature, how do we make sure it breaks out of that purely IT and security silo? For the people that pay us, how do we help them better understand risk, build smart security solutions, and implement effective capabilities? Put very plainly, how does the CISO matter to those charged with making money for the business? All right, Brian and Scott, thank you so much for rejoining the show today. It's been a while, I think several months since uh, either of you have been on. And today we're going to have a chat about uh, new CISO 2020 trends. So Brian, I'll start with you. Is there a high level trend with the CISO job itself? Is it changing from your perspective? I don't know if it is changing, but it definitely should. I would say there's the discussion needs to continue around business alignment. And I've had this same conversation, I can't count in the last couple of weeks now about taking the bull by the horns on like the C level job that you've got as a CISO, acting like it, honestly, just being that C-level and working with your counterparts, working with your peers and aligning security to the business. It's, I think that's the trend that needs to happen. It's the thing that it desperately needs. We need to get out of the, some of the weeds and the technicalities and start leaning into the business side of the company and aligning security to it. So I took a note there. I'm going to hold you to the alignment to the business. But before that, Scott, We've talked a lot about this one-on-one. Is there a trend that you see yourself with the CISO position? Is there something that you see that's getting sort of left behind for a good reason or getting added for a good reason? You know, a skill set, a task, a different seat, a different discussion at a different table. I definitely agree with Brian's perspective on that. The evolution of the the CISO has to move more to a business function. And, uh, you know, I have the opportunity to participate in many different forums and you see uh, varying degrees of success with that. And so I think it is becoming more of a, a leadership role, an executive role, line of business, but it's a very slow move and it's very different throughout the different industries, maturity of organizations and such. So I think it's, it's going in the right direction, just taking some time to get there. Okay. So we agree that it needs to align more with the business and we're seeing that start to happen. But I'm going to kind of call BS because I don't (laughs) see it happening well in very many places. And maybe I'm the contrarian. I'll play kind of the bad guy here. No, you're right. It seems like the the, the violent path is going to be trying to align with the business because many organizations or many CISOs, I don't believe, know what that means. Yeah. I mean, what what the hell does that mean anyway? I mean, I'll, I'll go back to you, Brian. It's like the CIO was, you know, way back. Like they finally grew up and now they're getting taken seriously. Look at the evolution of the CISO, right? It started out as a very technical role or it was the dual-headed role of somebody inside of IT. And then they grew up and kind of took the reins of security or they were a security practitioner that grew up and took the reins. How much business experience do they have, right? That's the piece I think that yeah, you're right. It, it's not there. You can call BS and you're spot on, man. Like it, it's not there yet, but that's the direction it needs to go. And I don't think you're going to see it happen until you really get CISOs who kind of get outside of their comfort zone on what they're used to doing with the technical aspects of security and IT and going out into the business and understanding what it is that they're actually protecting. Scott, can you give us a, an example 
because everyone wants to be business relevant. And we agree that it's a long road and it's not easy for every organization. But what's one thing that you were doing or that you're seeing happening that is sort of step zero or step one toward that goal? It's really depending on the a couple of factors, I think, how successful it is and what we see being done or I personally see being done. The maturity of the organization is one thing. And with that comes the culture and how the executives and the various business stakeholders and leaders view information security. And I think ultimately that comes back on the CISO to help drive that because it's not going to be done for them. So I think having a, the right person there to help drive that has a better effect on the organizational placement of that CISO than others. And others need help getting there. And I think that's where people who are in the right forums are catching up with that and seeing how it's being done. Everywhere I go, there's always talk about business function, become part of the business function, be involved. It's not just about having the new cool cybersecurity tools anymore, but it's about understanding the business, how it functions, why it functions, and addressing the risks that affect the function and um, viability of that organization. I'd add that to probably be effective, you got to ask for some help. I think it's time for CSOs to, to stop kind of sitting inside of a silo and their space within IT or wherever going, why isn't anybody helping me? And instead, le- like reaching out, like who's your allies inside the org? Is it legal? Is it HR? Is it internal audit? Is it a business leader that, you know, is the most profitable for, for the organization that you can just, just reach out and just be like, look, I need to understand this better. Help me, help me help you. Right. And there's, there, we should be kind of humble about it and just ask for the help. If you don't know, I think a lot of folks are just sitting there trying to figure it out themselves and failing and then wondering why they're failing or they're just, they're scared of asking for help because then it looks as if they don't know what they're doing. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to reach out. And you should be doing that inside of your own business because you all work for the same company. Yeah, I, I love that of asking from a, a sincere perspective to say, hey, I have this goal. I need your help. I don't know how to completely get there by myself. And not only come at it at a high level of humility, like you, you noted, but also document the fact that, that you are reaching out because not everyone's going to reply. But if somebody asks you who's above you or a peer to say, yes, I am putting effort X number of hours a day or a week, I'm putting into relationship building to improve relevance of this organization. And here's sort of how I'm doing it. Here's, so I want to go back to one thing that you said though, Brian, because I'm going to want to call kind of BS on that too. <laughs> you said it's just like the CIO, meaning the CISO is like the CIO used to be. And man, I get what you're going at there, but I think what happened to the CIO is they got replaced. I mean, there's still CIOs, but you're seeing all these other positions sort of pop up that are sort of bigger level Cs that are still in charge of transformation or these sorts of larger, uh, not just technical things. I mean, did the CIO really just sort of erode or, or is that a, how did the CIO grow up? I feel like it really kind of eroded into other positions, you know, the, the transformation agents, the digital, right. All that kind of thing. I mean, is that, is that really what you meant to say or, or am I wrong? I think we're both right. One aspect that like my point was the CIO grew up and taking it to be the, in the forefront and the view of the organization, right? It's not just a utility, right? It's a business enabler. So that definitely took that track, but then it did erode, right? I think some of the erosion, though, is just honestly marketing. It's like, oh, now I'm not the CIO, I'm the transformation officer, or I'm the CTO, the technical officer, or innovation officer, or whatever you want to call it to make it sound better than it is. At the end of the day, you still have the same CIO responsibilities. But now translate that to the CISO, that is growing up as well. And I think it's going to probably erode at some point as well, because chief information security officer should be turning into more chief risk officer or a risk officer in some capacity, or and there's going to be the addition of privacy. So I think you're going to see that same name change, the underlying responsibilities and the core will still continue, but there'll be either an evolution or a degradation in, in title that will go along with it. Scott, when will you become the chief risk officer? <laughs> You know, there's a lot of um, value to what uh, Brian just said. I think to go to the point of the CIO, I think one of the major drivers and why that you're seeing that change is this digitalization, right? Digital and data are becoming more important uh, than the technology itself. 
and that's why you see the raise the rising up of the the chief digital officer right and their chief innovation officer because we're moving so fast and we have to move fast and i think those roles are positioned to help drive that strategy faster the cio is being placed in that technology role and even more so is the ciso is continuing to grow as well right it's it's chipping away at the role of the cio many of my peers um, in various industries that are taking on the entire network stack un, under their under their belt now, right? So there's just more opportunity and more specialization. And I think this, that's one of the reasons why you're starting to see that CIO erosion. Yeah, I'm going to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say that you're seeing CISOs take over the entire network stack? Yeah, several of my peers have already taken that on, network operations. Um, and I think that's a great fit and makes a lot of sense given just the interweaving of security and controlling the network. Could it also be maybe a distraction too? I mean, if you look at what is, it's almost a flip of what what I would expect or what I used to think anyway, uh, where often I would get asked, well, what would it take for world-class security? And I would say, well, the first thing would be world-class IT because I need sort of these fundamental things. And I think that's what may have happened there in that example. Would you Would you agree that there was a, maybe a needed cleanup or a change there in order to say, yes, this is secure or where am I off? Well, I think the entire network paradigm is shifting. It used to be about hardware and switches and ports and plugs, and now it's about code and virtualization. So it's becoming more, I guess, agile and changing so rapidly. And it's being controlled through now policy and automation. And I think that's what's driving uh, or enabling even that change. You hit on something there in terms of automation. I mean, the idea of an asset has changed. The idea of time has changed. The, the lifespan of an asset could be just moments instead of you know, a piece of iron that we buy and procure and, and rack and stack, not to mention the impact when it could be you know, on-prem or off-prem cloud, all these sorts of ideas. And how is the notion of automation sort of changing the roles and responsibilities uh, besides over and above ownership. I mean, I'll go back to Brian on that. Oh, that's a big one to unpack. I mean, because you can you can look at automation just for the sheer need of what you have to do with a diminished workforce and what your goals are, right? Um, but let me interrupt you and clarify. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. How does the idea of IT automation affect, you know, we're talking about virtualization, both network virtualization spinning up VMs, object access, this sort of more micro, mm-hmm. um, you know, the artifacts that we have to protect sometimes don't persist and they're dynamic. How has that changed the direction of a CISO and the risks that a big organization has to? Yeah, I think the uh, the big thing there is, you know, when you're basically now you're, you really have to look at your configuration management, the birthing of a system or an asset, you've really got to get it right out of the gate because it's not going to live for very long, like you said, but during its lifetime, however long or short that is, it needs to be rock solid. It's kind of the current or legacy way of, yeah, that assets along, you know, out for a while or, or available, you actually have time on your side to be able to patch it, fix it, see what's wrong. Now with microservices and kind of this glimpse and like blip of technology and assets being available, while they're there, they have to be rock solid. So you know, from a, a CISO, you have to really get into kind of the design, the architecture, the engineering way, way up front to be able to see that be in a secure state for however long that asset's going to be around. I, I think that's a great question. I Honestly, I don't think I've given that as much thought as probably you should just because of the nature and the movement of automation right now. I mean, how many CISOs out there are actually tackling that problem in that way or even thinking that that's the, the way to do it? And I might be wrong. I mean, I don't know. That's just my thoughts, but that's a great question. So that's that's one side of automation. And then I think the other is, I think every security organization ought to have someone that's focused on working toward the benefits of automation on their side. Oh, yeah. There needs to be an automation, call it an office, or maybe even have dedicated automation engineers. Yep. Maybe going back to, to uh, Scott on this, I mean, what's the value because there's a lot of different answers and I have my opinion, but I'll, I'll withhold it for the moment. What's the real value of automation in looking after that, trying to fix that problem as a CISO for security purposes? 
you know, the value of automation for me is the efficiency at which you can do things and the efficiencies at which you can control them. So, you know, we're going through a DevOps kind of um, evolution right now at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And we're seeing tremendous value come out of that in the way of efficiencies. Um, We're managing much, much faster workloads. Uh, Our identity management processes have been automated to provision servers. And we're seeing tremendous value in that to kind of build once and repeat thousands of times. But I think, Steve, to your point is that we've had to bring on different skill sets in order to do that. So, you know, an off automation office, whatever you called it, uh, it's an interesting concept, but we brought on developers onto our security team to help drive the automation and do it the right way the first time because, you know, developer mindset is a little different than the typical or traditional security analysts. If I could add to that, Scott, I'll, I want to, I'm not going to necessarily challenge you on this aspect, but what would be, if you're going to do something quicker, that's great. You're going to automate it. But if you're doing it wrong in the first place, you're just going to do something wrong quicker. Like, how do you, how do you take into account? Like, how do we think about that upfront piece so that, yeah, you automate the right thing the right way and not just make the worst thing happen faster at scale? Well, that's where I think the relationships with the organization become critical, right? No longer do you have the um, luxury maybe, or, or even the time to, to be wrong to your point, right? So you have to be there at the beginning. It has to be uh, properly governed um, and mature, mature enough process that you can have it right the first time because you're, you're right, right? So if you're building things at a, a clip we did back three, four, five years ago versus today where that same pace is probably done in a fraction of a second, you can compound that wrong configuration very, very quickly and create tremendous uh, vulnerabilities or issues. So having the right governance, having the right relationships in place and putting the right tooling in place to ensure proper builds. I think one thing that's a little different, but, but related is, you know, one of the things we saw in our state of the stock report this year is a reduction in confidence in what I'll say is like SOAR, the automation around sort of automation, automated response. And I found that to be kind of strange because everybody's jumping into it and, and as I think they should. But I think what they're finding in this hints a little bit, I think maybe where you were going, Brian, is if you don't know, if you don't have a full idea around, for example, the scope of an incident and you want to try to automate response, you could find yourself into some trouble. You could even find yourself destroying evidence. You could you know, automate yourself into sort of this whack-a-mole scenario. So I think there was a, a big interest in it. There's still a huge interest in it, as there should be, but there was a reduction in the confidence at an executive level from last year, this year. And I think it will return over time, but I think people are figuring out kind of what do I automate? How do I automate? How do I validate? Is it, is it the right step? Is it complete? Right there was a question that I think people don't get is how do I automate? What do I automate? I think people are, some people are just jumping into automation, seeing it as, a, as their savior and not understanding how to even do it or what to automate first or even how to start. I had a bit of a rule at my last gig, which was, if the analysts or I are doing anything three times, like it goes on on the board to get automated because you've done a human action three times, like that is now a case to figure out and to automate. Like that was our way of saying, okay, what is going to go into the pipeline? Not just jump in and say, oh, let's automate all this stuff. Like what stuff specifically? How do you even know what to do and how to do it right? You have to have some type of some type of mechanism to get your ideas across to then automate and figure out which ones are going to work and which ones aren't. Because you're right, you could automate the wrong thing and cause an even worse problem. I don't know where the starting points are, but that seemed to work for us. I think you can, you can move yourself into a false sense of success. We need to make sure that, that we, we look at automation, I think, not only the benefit of making sure we're saving time, but is whatever we've done, is it complete? And what's the sort of the human benefit? And then from an executive leadership perspective, how does it bring consistency into my program? And that, that I think from an audit and a regulatory perspective to say what we do is consistent. You eliminate the sort of the anal- analytic variable variability rather of independent people. You know, it's often when we visit organizations and say, hey, if we were to give this malware alert to three different analysts, do you think you'd get the same result? And the answer is no, you know, for them to sort of do an investigation. So how does automation affect that? What are the kinds of things we need to do to eliminate the variability of answers? I don't think enough people are sort of jumping into that. Scott, anything you'd add to that? 
No, that's an um, interesting perspective for sure. I'm, I'm sitting here kind of trying to f- figure out how to best answer that. Well, I was curious to hear you say that the executives are, are questioning automation. I don't think my executives are aware of automation yet. So it's a pretty uh, mature organization or technically you can savvy executives to get, to get there that one. But, you know, I, I think that the example you use of three different analysts giving three different answers, I think you're right, but you have so much more potential for efficiency by automating those, those lower processes. So yeah, you might get three answers, but you probably are responding to a lot more alerts than you would have, or maybe even less and probably more credible alerts, right? So you're knocking off the, the noise and you're bringing up the valuable ones. And I think that difference in opinion is worth, worth it because you get so much more efficiency and fidelity on the alerts you are, you are getting if you uh, have the right SOAR platform in place. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. And, and let, me, let me clarify. So I was saying that lacking in general, forget about automation for a moment. If you have an alert, some, some indicator that needs something that needs researched in your organization, and you give it blindly to three different analysts, you will get variability in those answers, largely because the work is manual and it's open to interpretation. So the greater that we examine that as a work stream, and look at what are the kinds of things that we need to answer when we're looking to solve these types of problems. As an example of something in a SOC or an IR team, automation allows you to eliminate variability, it, assuming that you've sort of done your research ahead of time to find out, okay, what do, I, what do I want to make sure I answer every time? And how do I make sure it's answered completely? That's what I meant for that. So I may have led us down a, a, a negative path there, but that was my path that, that I w- was intending to go down where as long as you're sure of what you want to do and the outcome is correct and reasonable for your organization, automating that will eliminate variability and eliminate some of that, that analyst drift that I was referencing. Yeah, and that goes back to the, the very first point we made right around this is how do you do it right and get it right? Because build it wrong, uh, that could be catastrophic down, downstream. Yeah, Steve, I think you had a, a great piece of advice in there, even that three analyst example. I, I think a lot of people are, are want to embrace automation but again, to not understanding maybe how to jump into it or what to do, or even just kind of do that first initial use case to then make it, you know, really effective or, or you know, see the ROI right later. Maybe that's a piece of advice for for listeners. You know, CISOs looking at like if you had two or three analysts, give them that, pull the best practices out of what happened there, and then use that as your use case to then figure out how to automate. Because looking at that example there alone, you could, you know could be the beginnings for your justification for why you need to put in a SOAR platform in the first place. No question. No question. Scott, you started to say something? I'm sorry. I, we, we kind of went over one another. I didn't, but I actually, I, I can now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think, Brian, we, we struggled that same thing at Blue Cross Blue Shield. We were, you know, we were dancing around automation, trying to get to it. And I think it's that fear the first step. But then, uh, you know, through one of our, our networks, they had an intern come on, a uh, fellow organization in, in Buffalo. Intern came on and did amazing things with SOAR and automation. And we brought them over, showed them what we did, and our team was blown away. And they saw really you know, the value in it and how easy it can be. And then we took those first steps in using high-fidelity alerts to automate the things that we had people doing every single day, let alone three times. And it's been tremendous since then. Uh, and it's been a rocket ship ever since then. So thinking back to a trend, I want to switch over to insider threat. And Brian, you and I did an event where we kind of tag teamed, uh, kind of discussing the topic of how insider threat is changing. What trends are you seeing uh, specific to ownership of insider threat by the CISO? I think the biggest one that stands out for me is just awareness. I think five years ago, I was still having conversations with people, you know, after coming out of DOD where they, it was the ostrich syndrome of just like, oh no, all of our employees are good, right? Like nobody's doing anything bad. And they just not accepting that it's even a possibility to then prepare for. I think now there's more awareness of this type of activity happening. Was it Twitter just had a, they had three people arrested, right? Because they were selling information. I think that news report just came out. I mean, like things like that are happening more and more. It's more and more in the news. People are starting to aware it. They're, they're grasping it. They understand it. They're taking the blinders off, right? HR departments are taking the blinders off and actively leaning in going, hey, maybe maybe we don't have a problem, 
but in case we did, what should we be doing? Right. And that's a great conversation that any CISO should like grab onto and run with. What's changed in five years? Probably just the news cycle. Honestly, I think there's just more exposure to it that it's not, you know, the news cycle used to be outside attackers breaking in bad guys, APTs, blah, blah, blah. And now there's more news reports of, you know, insider, an employee, contractor, trusted whomever was the root cause for the issue. I I just think there's just more more awareness on that aspect. And it's, you know, right or wrong, the news does kind of shape some of our realities as far as what we go deal with. So, Scott, you run in a lot of circles. Uh, Do you typically find that the CISO or the security program owns insider threat? Absolutely. I think it's definitely one of the most difficult uh, problems for us to tackle as well. So yeah, it, it's definitely owned uh, within that space. Um, you know, the use of, of uh, behavioral analytics are going a long way to help with that, but it is, is absolutely a rising problem. And I, I think it's not only uh, becoming more prevalent, but the amount of exposure or um, impact it's creating is becoming more and more significant with just the ease and movement of data. That's something we are tackling every day. And, you know, even it worries me even more, I think, uh, you know, in the aspect of insider threat is the, the insider ignorance is too strong a word, but the people don't know better, right? That they take something because they think it's theirs or they do it by mistake. Those, in, in, in many cases, are almost worse and, and harder to, to determine. And we're, we're seeing that uptick in that as well. It's one of those things where gaining more visibility, whether it's log access or having capabilities that allow you to identify maybe what's normal or has this happened before really puts you in a different position because you're having to answer and work on new types of problems, which one of which you just talked about, which is, you know, is this person, are they malicious or are they just sort of untrained? How then do you work on that? Like, what's your path on that? I mean, you, you have a different type of investigation to manage now. How do you manage that? It's definitely something to manage. Uh, fortunately, I think, you know, we do it one and the same. It's the same training, same awareness. We just turn the message a little bit and make it a little broader. And it's not just about the malicious insider threat, but it's it's the un, uh, uneducated, uneducated insider threat. People are doing things not maliciously. So I think the usually the the the, the techniques the same for how we we um, combat that. It's just a matter of expanding the education and training to to account for that. And I think it's gone over well. And people are surprised by it too. Um, and, and they learn things. They thought, oh, it's my data or, or, you know, or my Word document and I can take it. And, and it really isn't. And those education um, sessions and um, you know, bringing people around to that, it goes a long way. And you can even see, it, see the reaction on their faces that are, that are training them. And the fact that you've discovered this and there's a feedback loop, you know, you have, your team is looking into this. They're coming up with these sort of interesting scenarios, stories to tell. Which then I would guess, I would assume, is a kind of an input back into new training to say, hey, we saw this strange thing. Like we should cover that in the next chapter of. So, your insider threat from a Hollywood perspective, I'll say, is an interesting source of stories to tell. Brian, would you agree to that? Yeah, I think I've seen my fair share of. uh, I wouldn't believe it if if it hadn't actually happened. I'd seen it in front of me or I'd seen the log data to prove it. You know, you've got. uh, some people are just really casual at work. They believe that, you know, they treat their work systems or accesses as if they're at home sometimes. And it's like, yeah, you should do that in your private life, not here. You know, you see things like that come out, you know, to to your earlier kind of point on the reaction of what to do with these type of events. I think there's a missed opportunity when you're not accounting for the fact that it's a person that you have as an employee inside of your organization that you can now directly address with the help of your human resources department and or the manager. And I think that 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 aspect of the investigation is sometimes lost or missed by very IT, very technical focused security teams. I think there needs to be a bridge either into your playbooks, your own books, your just your interactions or your uh, relationship with either HR or the management groups within an org to be able to then help address those insider threat issues, whether it's, you know, like we were saying, it's, it's casual, right? It's an, it's just a a mistake or a mishap or it's intentional, but involving those two teams, management and HR, I think are what's going to make security teams much more effective. 
So as a trend, kind of back to trends, I would find that most organizations, if you ask many people in security and ask them if they own insider threat, they would say no, that insider threat lives someplace else. It's a part of fraud or HR or some other piece outside of InfoSec. Now we're hearing that, you know, especially, you know, Scott says, hey, I'm, I own this, but I don't, I think that's less common. So I need one of you two, putting you both on the spot, to pitch me, right? I'm the CIO, I'm the COO, the CAO, whoever, CEO. And you are going to come to me and convince me why I, I, the CISO, should own insider threat. And I, first, I think, what's sort of the definition? So back to trends, has the definition of insider threat changed? So pitch me, has the definition changed? Maybe Brian, I'll start with you. I mean, how do I, how would you justify owning that as a pillar in your organization? I think I would tackle it the same way, enabling any type of, enabling a business, period. I would go so far as saying, no, we shouldn't own maybe the outcomes, but we should be enabling fraud or HR or whatever group it is, or even legal with the technologies and the capabilities and the processes right? That does live within IT. That should live within IT. That should be overseen by security. But then those capabilities should be delivered to those other teams to then be effective. So, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to like skate the uh, skate the question, but I think that it's a more of a happy middle ground. I wouldn't want to fully own all the outcomes of insider threat, but I would want to own how to enable it or not yeah. enable insider threat, you know what I mean? But like enable right. the capabilities of combating insider threat. <laughs> Owning the foundation for the capabilities. And I think, so what is, you know, I'll, I'll go to Scott now. What, why now are we talking about it? What, what has allowed for you to be kind of this cradle of insider threat, specifically around being able to answer the question, is this a malicious insider? Is this a compromised insider? Or is this, a negligent insider like what why now and 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 how how do you then sell that so then don't sell it to me the ceo sell it to me is the person in charge of hr or legal or why are you the person that can provide it to me like what's changed scott maybe my my perspective on insider threats a little narrower um steve maybe you're talking about a broader uh perspective on it but and even part to brian's point i, I think the um Addressing insider threat is definitely um, more than just an information security department. It is fraud. It is HR. Uh, it is privacy and and probably legal. But the reason why I think that uh, the, the CSO should own insider threat is because a fraud department isn't going to see something or address something until after it's happened. They're going to be kind of post event or or, or or who knows how far, how far post. My perspective on trying to address insider threat is trying to get in front of it or trying to detect it quickly or while it's in progress. And I believe that at least uh, in, in, in my areas where I, people I've talked to, information security owns those tools. We have the capability to do that now through behavioral analytics, file activity monitoring, and other things that allow you to get those early, early indicators. And in some cases, even stop it before it can happen. So I think that's where it, why it lands mostly, and, and I feel most passionate about it. We're the initiator of the insider threat. We're the ones that identify it quickly. We quickly rally the troops and rally the appropriate organizations to uh, address it. But we have to be there at the front lines to, to reduce the impact uh, as much as possible. And I think that's where the real pitch comes from, is that we have the capabilities now, we, we have the data, we have the algorithms, and we can have a do a much better job of combating this than we ever have in the past. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think the the one thing from a trend perspective, and maybe this is something that we or the CISOs of the world or the security programs of the world aren't doing enough of yet, is they have the tech, but maybe they've not socialized it well enough, or they have the program, but they've not marketed it enough to the other areas. So for a trend and maybe a little bit of help for the listener, what's sort of step one? I, I want it maybe a strategic answer from Scott and a tactical one from Brian. Brian, I'll start with you. What's a tactical step that the listener could take if they own this tech to kind of market or socialize it to say, hey, we do this and something really not only to add value, but to get credit for the work? Probably tying it to your 
you know, kind of your, whatever your HR system is for onboarding and offboarding and being able to then show activity around, you know, when somebody's onboarded offboard, I think of great use cases. Hey, we let this person go on X day and now we're seeing activity after X day. That's an issue driving that discussion into HR, uh, especially if you're in financial services and you've got a regulation over you that specifically actually looks at that type of a, an issue as, hey, why is there activity after somebody has left employment or been on contract? That directly appeases a regulation. It directly appeases an internal need. You have a tactical way to be able to showcase that and start opening up the door in the conversation around, hey, we can do other stuff too. Like this is just one use case, but look at all this. You know, give me another use case that you've been trying to figure out. That's a Scott's point. It was, yeah, we have the tools. So how do we use them to help out our business partner? And Steve, to your bigger question, which is why is the trend happening? It's because we have the tools. We now have better visibility because there are better tools and data gathering out there that we can actually see this activity happening. Whereas before, these kind of platforms just didn't exist. They weren't very good. They weren't mature. Now that they are, you know, we've built a bigger flashlight. That's it was happening all along. We just now can see it a lot better. No, I, I like that bit of advice on looking into. So the idea there um, to kind of put a bow on it is if we've had an offboarding event or we've laid somebody off or a group of people, we shouldn't see activity from those accounts. So if that's tied to HR, so we have a reduction in force, uh, we continue to monitor that. We have a, a watch list. Mm -hmm. we see activity, then we can sort of go back to that business partner, in this case, HR, and say, hey, there may be an issue here in either our, our exit process or our technical. And that, that's a good story to tell. They're probably elated. And the other thing to offboard is that squeaky chair. I think we should probably, whoever's, sorry, that's probably yours, uh, Hoagley. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but no, I, I think that's a great tactical example of a trend, maybe something to look into that's tactical. Um, let me go now. To Scott, what's a strategic or an executive lens trend um, related to all what we've talked about in insider threat? So maybe you're talking about in, a, in, a, in an ELT meeting or a boardroom. What's something to push into, to educate into, to begin to socialize? I don't know if my approach is strategic or tactical. I think it's a little bit of both. But we're not shy or we're not secretive about what we, the capabilities we have in the right audiences. So we bring our reports or our information or capabilities to the executive board, the executive forum, as well as the audit committees to give them awareness of what we can do and how we do it and how effective it is. We bring the necessary information um, and capabilities in the right lens to HR, privacy and fraud to make sure everybody's aware. But we're also very careful to explain what we can't do. We are not here to monitor someone's activity on the internet and clicks and log on times, we're monitoring the behavior, which is very, very different than their activity. And then even further, I think from a strategic mode, you go, and again, kind of blurring the line a little bit, we do a lot of um, socialization and attendance uh, or participation in um, other lines of business, you know, meetings and team meetings. And we're not shy about it. We give them the right information. We say, hey, look, things are going on. We're watching, but we're watching to protect you and to protect the data. We're not watching what you're doing every day, but we're watching behavior. And if behavior changes, we have the ability to react to that. And if you have a concern about behavior or something else, we can help you. And it's our way to gain more traction and more visibility, but also kind of a little bit of a primer there to keep on our toes and make sure they're aware and like a little bit direct FUD type, uh, type um, education. Absolutely. I think having strong outreach is really kind of how I'd put a capstone on that. And that allows both at a employee level and an executive level, I always found, especially an insider threat, being able to tell an interesting story, whether it's something you're able to do, or maybe a, even a story where you reached a dead end. And then naturally, the audience hopefully comes to the conclusion that, well, what do you need in order to stop this in the future or to better investigate it? And that's kind of a, then it, it leads into a way in an, in an executive, you know, sometimes it's harder to get a general support and cooperation than it is a million dollars. And often cases, it's, it's those higher level meetings where you get that cooperation. So to say, hey, we have, here's a story. This is a very real thing. It's not hyperbole. Um, you know, now I need the, the rest of the help, so to speak. You know, Steve, there's also a third point I want to probably make there, right? We've also, also found that there's information we know that certain groups, maybe HR, don't want to know or maybe can't know ethically. 
So we've had to also kind of tune that and, and take the ethical road on that stuff too, to make sure we're not giving too much information or perceiving or uh, maybe guessing at what's happening. And so we've had to dial down some alerts um, and change some things to not go too far down this road around insider threat and the monitoring and behavior that we're doing. To be clear, so there's certain things that you are collecting during an investigative process that you've had to put a lens on in order to, that, that it's okay for you to see as a incident responder, but they have shied away from, is, am I accurate? I want to make sure I understand yeah. that. More of a filter than a lens. A simple example, right? It is a, a, a employee looking to leave the organization. We can kind of tell uh, or at least have an idea based on the behavior around job search sites and things like that. And we went to HR and said, hey, we can, we can give you this and give you kind of an indicator like, no, no, we can't know that. And I get it. I understand that. So we've had to filter certain things out and not maybe overreact to things or um, make that data aware to protect the rights of the employee. So uh, there is a kind of privacy situation there that we've come across. And we have to always continue to be aware of that and adjust appropriately. That makes sense. I wonder... Obviously not related to your to your current employer. Maybe I'll switch over to to, um, to Brian on this. In an organization, for the listener, what advice would you give if HR is saying, "Hey, you know what? I can't see this. Uh, it's not ethically responsible," and and everyone would agree to that. But what if it's a situation where you see that and maybe document hoarding or evidence of something else that's happening? Like, how? What advice do you have to the CISO that's listening or the or the CIO that's listening that says, "Hey, I'm." I'm against a roadblock. I've got an, a business unit that can't or doesn't want to see this, but I think they need to respond to it. How do you wrestle with that? I think this, the CISO, CSO needs to understand what their authorities are, or, or at least should be. If you see something wrong that is going to have a negative impact and is going to, or going to cause a risk to the organization, you know, there's no mother may I on everything, right? Like, I'm not going to take the approach and go ask if should we go do this? Because no, if I see something bad, that's going to impact, like I'm, I'm an executive, I'm an officer of the company, you know, you're charged and given the role for a reason, you know, take the authority when you need to. Now, I'm not saying you do that all the time, right? That that's not good. But you know, when you see something, you know, I think at that level, you have to make a decision as, and then, you know, you have to then justify it. And I think if you have the data and you have the reasoning and the timing was that we can't have a committee to come up with the right answer to do this. I can't get consensus from HR and whomever, like something had to be done. A decision had to be made. We did it and we live with the consequences. Um, I would rather take that type of a direction, stop something dead in its tracks there or be wrong, right? I mean, like worst case, you're probably talking about disabling somebody's account and then, you know, incorporating physical security or somebody to kind of like say, hey, what's going on with this person, you know, physically, where are they maybe in the building? You know, what are they trying to do? But it, it's not like you're, you're, you're not harming them really in, other, in, any, in any real way. You're, I mean, again, I think worst case, you're just disabling some level of access. You slow them down a little bit. You might make some people a little mad at the end of it because of accesses, but it could amount to you know, a, a major breach, it could amount to a major loss of intellectual property or data. And yeah, I, I mean, that, again, I, there's probably a lot of different ways to do it. And it's one of those things that it's a judgment call at the time. But I think it's something that any CISO should be willing to take on and not have to go ask permission every time they need to make a decision that's honestly theirs to make. Scott, you're, a, you're an Exabeam customer, right? Yeah. <laughs> you guys using the full stack? We yeah, were using the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. We were running uh, the UBA platform and then SOAR just because we had a we had our own data lake running on Elk underneath it. Yeah, we just put in their whole their lake um, yeah. and just feeding that in. We're migrating everything over to uh, over to um, the hosted platform yeah. rather than on prem. One of the things, and this is a little weird, but I was going to throw it out there earlier. But in terms of trends. I feel like security teams are going to start to get smaller, not bigger, kind of controversial. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask, A, do you agree? And what is the trigger for that to occur? So I think that we can't continue to keep on growing, meaning we're just like eating, 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 like bigger, right. bigger, bigger, like we can't. So I think number of people, even though there's a great need and most organizations would say they're between 10 and 20 people short, I think eventually people are going to say, okay, like we can't continue. We can't, budgets can't go up 17% every year. Right. Like, 
right? So, I mean, what is, it's controversial and most organizations are still trying to get bigger as they should, but, you know, is there something around maybe instead of getting bigger, maybe more relevant, or maybe instead of more relevant or bigger, maybe it's, maybe CISOs get more um, polished. They go to cotillion, so to speak, and they understand how to, how to work with more influence at an executive level. They grow up like they have, right? What is maybe that as a trigger? Now I don't need a hundred people. I only need maybe 70, you know, that kind of thing. You can do that for sure, Steve. I can, I can handle that question, bro. We're kind of moving in a little bit of that direction ourselves. So I can, I can tee that up or at least uh, hit, hit the ball and Brian can pick it up if he wants. Okay. Just one quick thing for the listener. Often we have to prepare for uh, meetings and especially for podcasts. But in this case, our wonderful guests had zero time to prepare. I had my list of questions and topics, but they've uh, agreed to participate, just sort of catching these questions as they arrive. So credit to them for the speed of their their minds and, and maybe their mouths as well. So uh, thanks to them. I think it's just important sometimes to have candid conversations rather than sort of these sort of canned and prepared messages. So thanks to both of them. I want to close on one quick thing and then we'll, we'll round out the show. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to talk about? Uh, I'll go to Scott first. What's something that you're seeing that may be a little more out there, but a trend that you think might happen in 2020? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, and definitely, uh, I'll pick them up off the cuff with zero preparation. <laughs> you know, I, I think one thing that we're, we're tackling right now, and that everybody's tackling, quite frankly, is the shortage in security resources, right? I mean, you've heard all kinds of numbers around how short we are and the, the lack of security professionals and, and what's happening. And, you know, so that we're all subject to that. And we all have other barriers as well around the growth of our teams and how big we really can get, even if we have the support and funding. The resources aren't there. So uh, here at Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, we, we, uh, we're actually really fortunate. And I'll take a chance to, to brag on this a second. My team is actually fully staffed right now. Um, we have no open recs, at least for the second that I said this words. And hopefully before this podcast comes out, it'll still be the same by the time it comes out. But we're, we're kind of preparing for the inevitable, right? Uh, people will leave. We'll have the shortage of resources. And how do we start to deal with that? And what we're doing is, is looking at the professional services out there, the organizations that can help keep people engaged through diversification and have the real uh, high-end talent that they can retain. So we can leverage that and make our people better, growing our own and making them fit for what we do and how we run our program while relying on expertise of our organizations. Additionally, we're looking for uh, staff augmentation, where it's onshore, offshore, leveraging the, the breadth of resources across the world and not just here in Buffalo. And I think we position it to our team in a way that we're not losing resources. We're not augmenting what we do. We're making them more effective and efficient and keep them as engaged as possible what they didn't want to do and not force them to look at a screen uh, that they don't want to look at. Give them a chance to build something new, create a new algorithm, hunt something different. By moving the resource skills and uh, time in the right ways, we can create a highly engaged workforce and not to worry about the constant attrition and chasing the resources that don't exist. So you're kind of working it from the ground up. You're, you're, you're saying, hey, let's make sure that the house that we have is in order uh, and that there's resources available to keep people feeling you know, well-trained, relevant, appreciated, that kind of thing. So you're, you're fighting it to say, hey, let's make sure that we retain who we have, that we get the right people and we retain them. So we're not sort of in this always having you know, 10 or 20 open job wrecks. Do you think though that that is, so that's the foundation and you're, you're fully staffed. Maybe this doesn't apply to your current uh, employer, but do you think there's a trend where we begin to shrink some in terms of headcount and budget in general? It could go either way. I, I mean, hard to say, answer that question definitively. I think it's, it goes back to a lot of topics we talked about, right? Automation, SOAR, development wasn't really in the vocabulary of security professionals a couple of years ago or even a year ago in some cases. So it's, it's more about more on our plates and doing more with less. And, and I think that's where you see the shrinking because you have to take on maybe non-security functions or functions that weren't security a year ago, and you have to do it with the same amount of people. So maybe you're not shrinking, but you're growing in responsibility and dependency and things that you own. Mr. Hoagley, what do you think? What's your take on this? 
Well, I, I find myself in a, a good position then that now I run a consulting firm that delivers kind of that very into that very space where there aren't the resources available. Uh, they're not going to bring somebody on full time, but they still need that that caliber and level of advice and guidance. So I am definitely seeing that and um, happily working within it. But for those who you know CISOs who are you know staffing out or building out their organization and do have you know continually have five open racks, you know I would challenge them to just instead of trying to throw more bodies at it, just do better. You happen to be in a really really opportune spot, you probably have the background, the knowledge, the understanding, the type of character that is inquisitive, wants to fix things, wants to problem solve. Get creative. Don't just throw bodies at it. Sure, you're three people short, you know, in your instant response team. Okay, well, if those three people aren't going to magically show up because they're not getting through the recruiting pipeline or the talent just isn't available, what else can you do? I mean, I think complaining about, you know, the skill shortage and how it's affecting you isn't going to change the fact that you're still going to be short. So I, I, I would say get creative in your problem solving uh, within that space, um, because, you know, even if you have the full support of, you know, your board and executive management at some point, yeah, you're not going to get this ever increasing budget. So you are going to have to figure out alternative ways instead of just saying, OK, I'm going to just get another person and that's going to fix my problem. I think take the opportunity to get creative. You think you'd surprise yourself. And you probably show your real value to your organization by saying, look, I could, I, I said I needed five people. You didn't give them to me and I fixed the problem anyway. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the statement I'll sometimes share with others that know me well is that it's amazing how creative you can be when you're poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and specifically, I mean, so sort of professional poor would be, Hey, I don't have enough people or I don't have enough budget. And it's interesting what you can do when you allow yourself to be creative. And I think though that as time moves forward, I'm seeing some security budgets shrink. And the other thing is, is that no one cares that you, no one cares. Like, and everyone has the same sort of excuse that's been used for many years now that we don't have enough people. No right. one cares that that executive messaging fails. Right. They just, they don't care. It's a thing. Um, and somebody may uh, document that in an audit one day, but ultimately you're not going to get, you're not going to catch a break because of that. You're just not. So then, so now what? So what now what? Right. And so I think is that's where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's good. I, I'm, I'm still curious to see what, what do security teams do when they must get smaller? What do they cut? Because I think that is in the future, but maybe that's a topic for another show. I thank you both for your time uh, that you've spent with us both in the first show and now the second. Brian and Scott, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast. Oh, oh, oh.